Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. I want to share with you one of the funniest clips I think I have ever seen. Uh, So kick back, kick your feet up. This will take three minutes. Take a look at this. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. (laughs) Didn't mean to waste everybody's time. (laughs) Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. The four wisdom teeth people are gonna parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt, halt with your two wisdom tooth tail. You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um, I had two, I had four poles. No, five, no, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn in the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it and I see it all the time. Obviously people get something out of it. At best people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. 
Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, there's a Swiss account there. I'm going to check it. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know, the Pacific Rim Company is going to try to take that over. And you know, it's a global enterprise. <laughs> I walked on the moon. <laughs> well, you have the floor, Moonwalker. <laughs> you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> in my Lunar Rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. <laughs> oh, beware the me monster. Beware the me monster. We've all been in situations where there's a me monster in the room, right? You know what a me monster is like. Maybe it's your boss. Uh, or maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's the guy at the gym. Maybe you live with a bunch of me monsters. Or, or maybe you're sitting next, like, raise your hand if you're sitting. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I first saw this clip just a year ago, and I, I didn't say this in the first service, but it, it convicted me in a way that nothing has in a long, long time. In the middle of that little sketch, he asks this question that is quite profound. It's rather philosophic, rather theological. In the middle of his jokes, Brian stops and he asks this question. He says, what is it about the human condition that causes people to need to top one another? Indeed, what is it about the human condition? What is it about our condition that causes us to need to top one another? Well, of course, uh, in theological terms, the answer to that question is simple. The answer to that question is pride. Pride, human pride, is what causes us to need to top one another. You see, we all, in one way or another, live with a kind of inner me monster. But it can sometimes be hard to spot. Uh, I have my own me monster moments. Tell me if these resonate with you. These are little uh, pastoral confession. Uh, some of the me monster moments in my life is when someone makes coffee, but they don't make it the right way. You know that one? Or, or, or when uh, uh, I, I, they, people don't recognize how much I'm sacrificing for them or serving for them. And that little me monster. Or, or how about when, when we don't get to go to the restaurant that I really want to go to, which is basically whenever we go to a restaurant, a little me monster comes out. And chances are uh, you have a me monster in you as well. One of the challenges with this whole me monster idea is that it can be really hard to recognize that me monster. Pride is rather sneaky. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in his letter to, the, Gala to uh, the Galatians. We have this in the Bible. He says this, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What a description of the me monster. Uh, me monsters can be deceptive. Pride can be tricky. Two psychologists who study this phenomenon recently wrote a book. I love the title to their book. It's called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And in study after study after study, they show just how prone we are to this me monster phenomenon, just how prone we are to exaggerating our own accomplishments 
and to downplay the accomplishments of others. A couple examples, most teachers and professors, teachers and professors rate themselves as above average, right? All, the vast majority say, I am an above average teacher or professor. Uh, students are similar on this. 96% uh, of high school students rate themselves as above average in math. Think about that for a minute. 96% above average does not compute. How about this one? Uh, I love this one. They interviewed people who were in the hospital because of car accidents that they caused, right? Get that? They're, they're there because they caused the accident. They, it, they surveyed them and say, uh, how do you rate yourself as a driver? And the vast majority rate themselves as above average drivers. Uh, or my favorite one uh, was the, actually the survey on humility itself. Americans were surveyed about how they feel about their own humility. And the vast, vast majority of Americans say they are more humble than the person next door. Such is our struggle with pride. Well, today I want to continue in our Vices and Virtues series, and I want to spend just a little bit of time, we just have a few minutes, looking at pride and the problem, the sin of pride, the vice of pride, and its remedy, humility. So let's jump right in. Of course, I'm not talking about the kind of pride that comes from just doing a job well, that sense of satisfaction, right? That's a good thing. The kind of pride I'm talking about is the, the kind of pride that poisons the soul kind of pride that sours relationships, the pride that causes us to compare ourselves with others and fail to love our neighbors as we should. I think the best description I've read of this, the best definition of pride is simply this, that pride is an obsession with the self. Pride is an obsession with the self. Now, you might not know this, but the sin of pride is actually the oldest one in the book, literally. The writer of Genesis states that it was pride that the serpent used to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Listen to the serpent's words. He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, said the serpent. And we all have, in one way or another, ever since been trying to take God's place in this world. In fact, uh, interesting little nerdy moment here. The word, one of the words that was used for sin by the ancient rabbis in Hebrew uh, describes this very problem of pride. The word for sin is the word pasha. Everybody say pasha. Okay, now use your hand, right? Pasha. That's the Valley Girl version, or, or you can use the, the Wayne and Garth version. There's a Wayne and Garth version. Too. Okay, back on point. These ancient rabbis knew something about this word. This word means exactly what it sounds like. Pasha means to push out, to throw off, to refuse to submit to rightful authority. And what the ancient rabbis recognized about the human condition is that this sin, the sin of pride, is the sin that lies behind all the others. We see this reflected in Psalm 10. The psalmist writes, In his pride the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Humankind has pushed God out of the picture so that we, like Adam and Eve, can be our own God, can serve ourselves. There is no room for God. There is no room for other people. So, 
What are we to do with this? How, how do we recognize this sneaky kind of pride in our life? Well, I want to give us a quick little pride test. Okay, I'm going to give us five versions of how this pride shows up. You can keep score if you want to be better than the person next to you. And if maybe you want to collect all five pride sins. You ready? So pride number one, here we go. Pride number one. The most visible example of pride in our culture is that we see is vanity. Uh, vanity is the obsession with one's own appearance. Now, most of us don't think of ourselves as vain, right? That, that's something that somebody else is. Let me see if I can convince you that this might be your problem too. Suppose for a moment you are in a group photo. The first time you see the picture, where do you instantly look? At yourself. And if you look good, do you like the picture? Well, yes, of course, you look good, right? Now, how about this? If you are the only one who looks good in the picture, do you still like the picture? Yes. If, if some in the picture are cross-eyed and others have spinach in their teeth, but you still look good in the picture, do you still like it? Yes, you do. If that's what makes you like it all the more, then you definitely have a problem with vanity, right? Such is the human condition. The me monster is alive and kicking. Vanity can seem relatively benign, but it can actually do some real damage in our souls. Uh, it can lead some, to some very real struggles with body issues, uh, self-worth, uh, unhealthy relationships with food. But as bad as vanity is, it is not the worst form of pride. The second uh, way we see pride show up in our culture and our lives is what I'm going to call stubbornness. Stubbornness is the pride that causes us to shun correction. Now, if you're elbowing somebody next to you right now, just hold on. Your sin's coming up next, okay? If you are the kind of person who always has an excuse for any problem or failure, you might suffer from stubbornness. It was the traffic. Well, my coworkers, my boss, whatever the excuse might be. You don't ever ask for help because you already know everything. But perhaps the greatest danger of this kind of pride is in marriage. Oftentimes, I'll see this with married couples. One or both of the people are suffering from stubbornness, and they'll say things like this. Aaron, I'm not changing until she blah, blah, blah. Aaron, I'm not going to apologize until he blah, blah, blah. And we are stuck in the sin of stubbornness. We are stuck in the sin of pride. Is there a lot of hurt? Yes. Is there a lot of stuff that needs to be dealt with? Absolutely. But at the root of that situation is pride. There is a me monster lurking, and that me monster will eat your marriage for lunch. So vanity, stubbornness. Anybody collected two already? We're going for a hat trick here? All right, number three. Number three. This one's a little bit tricky. Uh, if so far in today's talk you have been thinking, boy, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this talk today. I've got a lot of me monsters in my house, but I sure don't suffer with that. Who is this pastor anyway, starting the sermon with a comedy clip? That's so unrighteous. I can't believe he would do that. If you had any of those thoughts, then your pride sin might be what I'm going to call self-righteousness. And man, we as Christians stink at this, don't we? Like this should be, this is like a Christian specialty right here. Uh, now, this form of pride does not come from doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is good. It comes from doing the right thing and marrying it to a life of comparison. When you do the right thing more rightly than someone else, you might be suffering from self-righteousness. 
Maybe you eat better. Maybe you exercise better or you parent better or study better or pray better or worship better or faith better. Whatever it is, you might be suffering from self-righteousness. This form of pride is the antithesis of love and empathy, which is why Jesus had a zero-tolerance policy for self-righteousness. Vanity, stubbornness, self-righteousness. Fourth one is this. Fourth one is some uh, pride that we see at work in the form of insecurity. Now, this might seem a little counterintuitive, and let me explain this. I'm not saying that all cases of insecurity are rooted in pride, but there is a kind of insecurity that is birthed from pride. Insecurity can sometimes simply be another way that we become self-obsessed and hence vulnerable to the me monster. Let me give an example. I talked with a guy just a few weeks ago. He's been here at Westlake for a while. We, we have a good relationship. And he said, Aaron, I, I was thinking about getting more involved. I wanted to join a community group or, or a Bible study. And he said, but then I realized, you know, I, I don't know enough about the Bible to join a Bible study. Now, again, we had a good relationship, so in that moment, I, I kind of teased him, right? Uh, I said, okay, let me, let me get this straight. You're not going to join a place where you can learn more about the Bible because you don't know enough about the Bible. Am I understanding that rightly? Do you see the absurdity here? Now, it's easy to pick on a Bible study, but this is true for anything, right? Well, I'm not going to go to the gym because I'm not in shape. The pride of insecurity finds its roots when we don't want to be known for the true selves that we really are. When we're afraid that if others see who we really are, that they will reject us, they will exclude us, or we will not measure up, or that that insecurity drives us to pretend, to fake it, to perform, to mask, whatever it is, we might just be suffering from the pride of insecurity. And that pride might just rob us. That self-focus might just rob us of the life-giving relationships God intends for us to have. Vanity, stubbornness, self-righteousness, insecurity. Fifth and finally is something I'm going to call exclusion. Pride can cause us to, ready, pshaw others out of our lives. It's not just God that we pride out of our lives. It can be other people as well. Maybe we exclude people because they're different from us or they don't think like us or, or we, we think less of them in some way and we think by differentiating from them somehow we will be more significant. We pshaw others out of our lives and we find ourselves ruled by the me monster. You, me. You, me. See the difference? The world in which the Bible was written was a you-me kind of world. It was a world filled with pride. In the ancient world, humility was a four-letter word. In fact, the ancient Greeks actually, in some of their writings, there's some famous writings by Seneca about how you can brag without sounding like a jerk. Bragging was an art form in Greek culture. To be humble was shameful. You didn't want to be on the lower end. The whole point of society was to climb as high as you possibly can, step on whoever you had to step on to get there, get to the top, and do whatever it took to stay at the top. Kind of hard to imagine a society like that, I know, but you might get a feel for that, right? But when Jesus came into this ancient world, he was like nothing the world had ever seen. Jesus came in. And he turned the world's rules upside down, and he offered us another way. 
a remedy to our pride, a cure to our me monster, and it is the way of humility. The humility of Jesus was scandalous, to be sure. In a world that celebrated achievement, power, position, privilege, Jesus chose the path of humility. He welcomed sinners. He loved the outsiders. He associated with the lowly. He showed zero regard for his own reputation. Jesus took the me, you principle and turned it upside down saying, me, sorry, me, you, me, you, me world. And he said, no, it's a me, you kind of calling. But perhaps the most striking example of Jesus' humility is the one he gave to his closest friends the night before he was executed. Some of you will know this story. Jesus gathered in an upper room with his friends, and they were enjoying the Passover meal together. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus did something that marked his followers forever. He stood up and he, he took off his outer garment and wrapped a, a towel a, a around his midsection. It was, a, it was a sign of a slave, a sign of a servant. He picked up a, a basin of water and a wash rag, and one by one, he went around the room, getting down on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. And they were flabbergasted. They didn't know what to do with this. And at the end of that foot washing session, Jesus said something that they never forgot. He said, you know who the greatest in my kingdom will be? It's those that choose to be servants of all. That was the way of Jesus. It was the way of humility. Now, the problem is the, the early Christians didn't quite know what to do with this. I mean, they were steeped in a Greek culture that said, no, you climb to the top. But then there was Jesus over here who had turned everything upside down. And was this what they were supposed to do? I mean, were they really supposed to follow this example? And the Apostle Paul answered this question right on the nose in his letter to the Philippians. Let me read it to you. Listen to Paul's charge to the Christians and to us today. He says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same what? The same mindset as Christ Jesus. The same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To follow Jesus, to be free from our me monster, is only to be found in the way of humility. So how do we do that? How do we take off pride and put on the humility of Jesus. Well, we have just a few minutes. I'm going to go fast. I promise I've got four steps, four things. I don't want you to do all four. I just want you to pick one. You, if you, if you got all five sins, congratulations, you win. I want you to pick one of these four habits because humility is a habit. It's a practice. I want you to pick one of these that you're going to try this week. Let me fire through these quickly. First habit you might try this week is this, choosing to serve rather than be served. Choosing to serve rather than be served. Truth is, we get pretty accustomed to being served in our culture, don't we? If, if I have to wait more than two minutes and 30 seconds in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, I'm pretty sure I've been offended, right? I was just, I'm so accustomed to being served. 
Well, this, this is so deeply embedded in our culture, and, and we're such, such a, an entitled, there's such a sense of entitlement and complaint that comes from this form of pride. But what if we were t- to choose to serve others even when we're not required to, just like Jesus? Choosing the role of the servant may just be the single greatest weapon we have against the me monster, which is why I continue to be so amazed at the men and women who serve on our setup and packup teams. If that's you, I just want to say thank you. Uh, There is no spiritual gift of setup and packup, okay? Nobody has that spiritual gift. It's just people who've chosen to serve, chosen to serve. Parents, what if you were to serve the teachers who serve your children? Bosses, what if you were to serve your employees this week? Or married couples, how might you serve one another? How might you put the needs of your spouse before your own? Choosing to serve rather than be served. That's the first assignment. You don't have to choose that one. Option number two, door number two, it's this. Instead of pushing others out of the limelight and taking all the glory for yourself, what if you pushed others into the spot? I was at the charter school here this uh, last week. They were borrowing some of our equipment for a school assembly, an awards ceremony they were doing. And there was one award that so struck me. It was the character award. And this award went to a first grader. I want to tell you about what he did. Uh, The cool thing about this award is you can't be nominated by a teacher. You can't be nominated by an administrator. You can't be nominated by a helicopter mom. You have to be nominated by a fellow student. And this so struck me, this one uh, student, they were working on a class project with Legos, and there was another student in his class uh, that had a little Lego guy, you remember the little Lego guys? Only this other student's Lego guy did not have a hand. And so this student decided to remove the hand from his own Lego guy and gift it to his classmate. He literally lent him a hand. But I was so struck by this. The character of this kid, the generosity, unknown. But it was someone else who pushed him into the spotlight. How might you celebrate the accomplishments of others around you this week? How could you push others into the spotlight where they might be celebrated, where they might be the ones to receive the glory? Option number three is simply this. The third practice is something I'm calling opening your notebook. And it's all about the habit of learning from others. Ben, you guys can come on up. When I was in college, uh, my friend Dan had a peculiar habit. He carried around a small little moleskin notebook in his back pocket. And uh, he took it everywhere he went. And then one day I was talking with Dan, and he pulled out the notebook in the middle of our conversation. He opened it, and he began writing in it. And the little me monster started to get offended in me. He's not really listening to me. He's writing. I said, Dan, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just writing down that thing that you just said. It was so profound. I want to reflect on it more later. And I was so struck by this because so many of my conversations in college were like this. I remember Charlie Brown? Okay, never mind. I was just waiting my turn to talk, but Dan was listening that he might learn. One of my favorite things about Lake Forest Church is that we don't celebrate the cult of personality here. It's not all, this isn't Aaron's pulpit or or, or Moses' pulpit, or Mitch's pulpit. We, we have a team of gifted communicators, and I believe that we can learn from anyone, anyone who is willing to open the Scriptures, pray, and say, God, would you teach me? Who might you have to learn from this week? Who might have something profound to teach you? 
Last habit, if you haven't liked any of those three, uh, this one is your last option. You ready? The last option. Option number four is what I'm calling the lost art of confession. The lost art of confession. For centuries, Christians have recognized this problem of pride. And the destruction that it does, not just in our relationship with God, but in our families and in our workplaces and in our churches. And God has gifted us with the discipline of confession as a way of staying humble, living in humility, and sharing humility as a community. In fact, the brother of Jesus, a guy named James, wrote about this in the Bible. He said that when we confess our sins to one another, there's a kind of healing that can take place in our soul that can come in no other way. When I get honest about my shortcomings, honest about my failures, honest about my sins. Now, I don't need to go and parade that in front of the masses. That might just be another form of pride. But to pull a trusted brother or sister aside and say, hey, can I confess something to you? Would you speak God's grace over me? Would you pray for me that I might be healed? There's nothing, nothing that can free us from the me monster more than choosing the path of humility.